dangerous things from your law. Help us to rightly divide the word of truth like the Bereans. And thank you, Lord, for being a God that will never leave us nor forsake us. You are good and do good in your name. Amen. Continuing our study here through the book of Psalms, Romans 3, and Psalm 5. Start out with a quick story. I got saved back in uh, 1993, and there was a group of us that all got saved around the same time. Some of us were a few years apart from each other in age, so one of the guys that got saved around the same time that I got saved was a little bit older, and he was married at the time and had a child, brought a lot of baggage into his marriage, brought a lot of baggage into his life. New creation in Christ, but there was just a lot of old, a lot of old. Had a lot of problems, a lot of situations, so he would end up calling us and just kind of like talking through things and having bad moments and rough times. So here we are, there's a group of us, you know, I'm maybe 16, 17 at the time, you know, some of my friends that are a little bit older, maybe 18, 19 at the time, and here's this guy that's married with kids calling us, saying, hey, what do you think, what should we do? We had no idea. But he would call on a regular basis and he would say, oh, man, I messed up again. I messed up as a father, I messed up as a husband, I messed up as a man, here I am supposed to be this Christian, and just, just, I'm a failure. And I remember one time my friend Jason was ministering to him, and he said, just out of this despair, he goes, I'm a loser. And I remember Jason said, he goes, finally, you get it. You're a loser. We're a loser. We're all losers. And he says, once you can get that point, we can finally move on. So the only point I want you to get this morning is you're a loser. So at this point, if the worship team wants to come forward, just take that home and chew on that the rest of your life. Now, the reason I bring that up, because the word that we're going to speak about this morning out of Psalm 5 and Psalm 6, it's Psalm 5, verse 7, but as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy and fear of you, I will worship towards your holy temple. And then in Psalm 6, verse 4, return, O Lord, deliver me, O save me for your mercy's sake. But before we can understand the depth of that word mercy, we have to understand what we are dealing with, who we are. Romans 3, please, verse 10. In Romans 3, 10, he's actually starting to quote from Psalm 5 in certain spots. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have altogether become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongue they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And jumping down to verse 23 that sums it up. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God got to get this this point understood if this point is not understood then when we come and try to explain to you the depth of this word mercy it will mean nothing because the problem is we'll look at ourselves and say i'm not that bad i mean i got some areas i need to work out i got some areas i'm a little rough on i have some moral failures no when you study the bible and you see the depth of sin that we are then you can finally learn to start to grasp and understand mercy When the Bible uses this word to describe me, that I am a worm, can't get much lower than that. And that's how God tries to describe us sometimes. And there's also this idea that all of our works are like filthy rags, Isaiah 64. 
On my best day, I'm still an unholy mess. And God still just loves us. That's mercy. And that's what psalmist is trying to give us today in Psalm 5 and Psalm 6 is a deeper understanding of what this word means. But for once again, for us to grasp this world, we have to understand that we are all losers. And that there are times that I wake up in the morning and I just look around and I just think, Lord, I'm a failure as a husband. I'm a failure as a pastor. I'm a failure as a father. It's just, I am. I am just this mess. I, I, I probably have already screwed my kids up. They're probably already done. I don't even know why Dawn's with me. I'm sure she can find somebody better if she just looks. And I can't even believe that the church even lets me still have a key to come in and unlock the door. And if you think I'm making jokes, you don't understand sometimes the thoughts that go through my head is that, Lord, I am a failure. In every area of life, I have messed something up. In fact, the only thing I'm good at is sinning, and that's the thing you asked me not to do. And God says, James, I know, and that's why I give you my mercy. Because I am such a complete mess that God still says, James, I want you, I love you, and I want to be with you. And that's why I give you my mercy. Because you cannot earn it, you cannot deserve it, you can do nothing to get it. And it's God's mercy that comes and just loves us while we're still a mess. And I want us to understand this word. So this word here that we're going to look at in Psalm 5, 7, and Psalm 6, 4, as we continue our study through the book of Psalms, it's used over a hundred times in the book of Psalms. hundred times. One commentator said this about the word. The term is one of the most important in the vocabulary of Old Testament theology and ethics. That's a big statement. That this term is one of the most important in the vocabulary of Old Testament theology and ethics. So, of the 39 books in the Bible, this term, this idea of mercy, is that vitally important. Another commentator said it's a central theological term, a key attribute. Here's the problem with the word mercy. To translate it over from Hebrew to English, it's just not a good English equivalent. If any of you have ever studied out foreign language before, you've got to understand what I mean. Certain words just don't translate over well. You can get an idea. You can get a meaning. Certain times you can get the exact meaning. But there's some that you just can't find a great English equivalent for. This word mercy is one of those words. Depending on your translations, it says lots of different things. My New King James calls it mercy. Your translation may say unfailing love, great love, steadfast love, loving kindness, goodness, or just kindness. All of those terms come together and you start to grasp what the word mercy means. It is God's unfailing, great, steadfast love towards us. It's a very, very deep word. It's one of the words used to describe God himself. In Exodus 34, it says this, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression. God keeps mercy for thousands. His, His nature, his characteristic, his attribute, he is mercy. He is unfailing love, great love, steadfast love, loving kindness. So when you come into this building and I come into this building and we are just a mess, and it's like you don't even understand how much of a struggle it is just to get here. You don't understand how much of a struggle it is just to even open my Bible or just to pray. God says, I know, and in my mercy, I still meet you there. Because that's just 
his love. He then says, since this is an attribute of me, I want this to be an attribute of you. Micah 6.8, he has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I love it when God takes something complicated and he just really simplifies it for us. When the guy came and asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus says, I'll sum up all of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy for you. Love God, love others. Oh, I like that. So when God comes and says, I just got three things for you to do. What does the Lord require of you? Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Love mercy. His mercy is there for us. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. Through the Lord's mercies, we're not consumed because his compassion fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God's mercy is new every morning. As we talked about last week, we got into sleep a little bit there. We talked about how we wake up. God wakes us up. He awakens us every morning. And I wake up every morning in his mercy. I had a guy who was studying out one time. He says, listen, I woke up this morning and I didn't woke up in hell. His mercies are new every morning. I don't wake up in hell. His mercies are new every morning. Every morning I wake up and God says, his mercy is on me. That's why great is your faithfulness. And it's not only something we experience in the morning, it is a lifetime mercy that we can have too. You guys know Psalm 23. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So this is something where every morning I can wake up in his mercy and surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And that mercy then eventually opens up the doors of heaven so I can have salvation through Christ because God is mercy. He himself is just mercy. 2 Corinthians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. What a deep word this is, is to understand his unfailing, great, steadfast, loving kindness that I bring absolutely nothing to the table. I am just a mess of a husband and of a father and of a pastor and as a man. And God says, I still want you. Mercy. And that's what we're going to learn about here. And that's what we're going to see is this ongoing theme. This was a huge deal to the Jews. When we get to some of these later Psalms, we're going to see this. Before they'd go into battle, they would cry out that his mercy endures forever. In fact, in Psalm 118, that phrase, his mercy endures forever, is repeated five times in one Psalm. And if that sounds like a lot, then you got to read Psalm 136. In Psalm 136, the phrase, for his mercy endures forever, is repeated 26 times. And one psalm. God's trying to get a point across. The point is this. You wake up in his mercy. His mercy follows you all the days of his lot, your life. His mercy endures forever. He is the God of mercy. That's what makes this so amazing. And I hope we scratch just a little bit of the depth of the understanding of what this word is. So you can understand how low we are. How nothing we are. And God still just loves us. Psalm 5. Verse 1, to the chief musician with flutes, a psalm of David, give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my meditation, give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for to you I will pray. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord, and the morning I will direct it to you and I'll look up. For you're not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. 
and fear of you I will worship towards your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. But let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor, you will surround him as with a shield. Jump back to verse 1. Give ear to my words. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry. Talking about praying right there. You see three different really types of prayer going on. The first one, give ear to my words. Sometimes I can put the words together for prayer. Sometimes I'm sitting there and I can say, okay, this is what we're seeking you on, Lord. We need wisdom on this. We need vision on this. We need guidance on this, Lord. I need strength. In the, and I can put together these words and I can come and, and sound halfway eloquent and like I got it a little bit together, Lord. But then there's other times, verse one, consider my meditation. Some of your translations say moaning or groaning. I can't even put words together. I, I'm just so distraught. Romans 8 tells me how God is fluent in sighs and groans and I'm thankful for that. That I, I can't, I'm so overwhelmed, I'm so bothered, I, I can't even put the words together and it's just a moan, it's just a groan. And God says, I got that. And then lastly, give heed to the voice of my cry. Sometimes it's just cry. It's just tears, it's only crying. And as we talked about last week, that, that quote from Spurgeon where he talks about how the most native part of our language is crying. As a baby, that's the first thing they do is cry. So God knows my words when I can put it together. He knows my groanings and my moanings when I can't even put the words together. And he knows my cry. What an amazing way I, that I can communicate. And who am I praying to? Verse 2, for to you I will pray. Now why does it have to say to you I will pray? Because the reality is sometimes we're not praying to God. Sometimes we're praying to other people so they can hear us and think that we're impressive. Sometimes we're praying with ourselves. Have you ever prayed with yourself? You ever caught yourself doing that? You start out good. I mean, you start out with this idea of God, you're good. I love you and I just want to praise you. And I'm giving you my kids. I'm giving you my wife. I'm giving you my marriage. And next thing you know, I'm giving you this problem I have. And then I, I just all of a sudden, it clicks over to, you know, Lord, give me wisdom on this. I wonder what I should do. You know, I could do this. You know, I could do that. And then all of a sudden, I make a little pro and con list in my head. And I realize that I got my eyes off the creator of the universe and now I'm just talking to myself. Oh, okay, wait, Lord, Lord, let me get back to you. Lord, help me have a focus when it comes to you. Sometimes we pray with ourselves and it's all about us. In Luke 18, there's an example of a guy that prayed with himself. It says this in Luke 18. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. Comes right out and says, he prayed with himself. What did he pray? God, I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. What was praying with himself like? It was a whole lot of I. I, thank you, that I am not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. There's five I's in that prayer. When you start praying with yourself, it's usually all about us. And we have to be careful that the prayer is to you, verse 2, to you I will pray. Humbling ourselves to God's plan in our life to say, Lord, you are sovereign, you are good, you are faithful, and to you I give it over. 
you remember correctly, we went through our study in Colossians a few weeks ago. We studied out on prayer. And we talked about how there's different types of prayers that we have that are basically trying to tell God what to do. The first one was, remember the butler prayers? You just treat God like your butler? Lord, I want this promotion. I want this raise. I want that car. I want that girl. And I want my health. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. And then when God doesn't give you what you want, you fire your butler. Well, God didn't do anything I want. I've had people come up to me over the years and say, well, I prayed about it and God didn't do anything. You were telling God what to do. That's not praying. You're treating him like a butler. The next one is the genie prayers. It's just a lot of wishing. Oh, Lord, I hope I get the job. Oh, Lord, I hope I get the girl. Oh, Lord, I hope I get this. Oh, Lord, I hope I get that. There's not a communication with the sovereign God created the universe. It's basically you just rubbing a genie lap saying, I hope this works, I hope this works, I hope this works. And then what happens is the prayers aren't answered. You say, well, forget that. And the last type of prayers are the Santa Claus prayers. Lord, I will read more. I will pray more. If you just get me this, Lord, I will go to church. And we try to cut deals with God. Look, Lord, I've been good. You owe me. Be careful of butler prayers, genie prayers, Santa Claus prayers. The only way I can even approach God is through his mercy. Psalm 69 says this, Hear me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. Turn to me according to the multitude of your tender mercies. The only way God even hears me and the only way he even turns his head towards me is through his mercy. There's no good I can do to earn a spot of talking to God. There's no favor I can do to say, God, I deserve your ear now for 30 seconds. The only way the Lord will even hear me or turn to look at me is through his tender mercies. Because I am a worm. I am a mess. According to Romans 3, I am just sin. My good works are filthy rags. If you've ever studied out the Old Testament, when they go to offer sacrifices, they have to offer sacrifices for the sacrifices that they're offering. Because their sacrifices they're offering are even tainted with sin because the sacrifices you're offering are done by sinful people. So now you have to offer sacrifices for the sacrifices that are sinful. God is holy, perfect, just, and good, and we have none of that. We cannot approach him in any way whatsoever. And it's only through his mercy does he even look at us or hear us. His unfailing, great, steadfast love. And that's what makes it so amazing, is I cannot earn this, I cannot deserve this. And he still does it. Because I am a complete failure, and God still says, I'll talk to you through my mercy. So therefore, verse 3, my voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord, in the morning I'll direct it to you and I'll look up. I, I love this verse. I, I mentioned to you last week, this is the call to worship verse that my family does before morning devotions, is we start our mornings off with the Lord. Now, if some of you have been out here and you've heard me teach for, for 20 years, and number one, I apologize for that, and number two, thank you, you know my love for mornings with the Lord. And, and I've hit that multiple times, so I'm, I'm not going to bang that drum again. I want to encourage you as your friend, as your pastor, as your brother in the Lord, you will be blessed by starting your morning off with the Lord. Just learn to set that time aside for the creator of the universe and go to him and his mercy 
and start your day off with him. You will be blessed more than you can ever imagine. I do want to share one quote, though, from Spurgeon about the morning. He says this, An hour in the morning is worth two in the evening. While the dew is on the grass, let grace drop upon the soul. There's something about starting the mornings off with the Lord. An hour in the morning is worth two in the evening. Lord, I give you the day from the beginning. From the beginning. Why is this so hard? Why is it so hard to cry out, to groan, to pray, to start the mornings off? Because look at verses 4, 5, and 6. You're not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. I'm wicked. Evil. I'm evil. I'm boastful. I'm iniquity, verse 5. I speak falsehoods, verse 6. I'm bloodthirsty and I'm deceitful, verse 6. I'm a mess. So all the things that God hates, abhors, all the things that God says he's going to judge, that's what I am. And this fleshly battle of sin, Lord, I'm just a mess. That's why verse 7 But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. See, I can't approach him in anything else. Lord, it has to be your mercy. I cannot approach you in anything else. James 2, 13. Mercy triumphs over judgment. God's unfailing love, because I can never earn it or deserve it. I'm the one shocked that I failed as a husband and as a father and as a pastor. God's not shocked. I'm shocked. God says, my mercy, my mercy. And not only that in verse seven, then in fear of you all worship towards your holy temple. And, and you know, we've been praying over fear. That's one of the prayer things for our, our first six weeks of prayer out here as a church is learning to fear God, fear God in our time and our finances and everything we do is fearing God. He is God, I am not. So Lord, in your mercy, I approach you. I then fear you, a holy all reverence for who you are. And then verse eight, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Lead me in your righteousness, Lord, in your righteousness. If you remember back from Psalm 23, he restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So put this together. Your mercy saves me and your righteousness leads me. It's all him. It is not my good works save me. No, your mercy saves me. My good works are going to keep my boys on the right path. No, your mercy is going to keep my boys on the right path. My good works are going to save my marriage. No, your mercy, Lord, is going to save my marriage. Okay, well, I'm going to go lead a good life in my own. No, Lord, your righteousness leads me. I am completely, utterly out of this equation. Lord, your mercy, your righteousness, it's all you. That's the depth of that word, mercy. Why do we need this mercy and righteousness? Because nine and ten, it is a messed up world out there. There's destruction. There's no faithfulness. Nine, their throat is an open tomb. That is a, quite the phrase in certain translations where basically your throat is an open grave. You're like looking down to death and destruction and decomposition. It is just there. That is our lives. We're guilty, verse 10. We're guilty. I, I cannot stand before a righteous, good, holy God. See, there's the thing. It just blows my mind. I still run into people that attended church, maybe even attended out here, and for some reason, they still have in their mind this concept of, if I just do good, God will honor that. 
I don't think we've even remotely closely taught anything like that in any way whatsoever. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not by works. Amen. I have met two people, though, in life that claim they did not sin. One time I was at Northwood State Community College. I was going to college out there. Somebody came into the atrium, set up a box. It wasn't a soap box. It would been really cool if it was, but they set up a box. Got on the box, and they preached that if you sin, you are not saved. And they believed that if you sin, you're not saved. Only sinless people are saved people. And then there was a guy. A guy that's come out here. Sporadically, come, disappear, come, disappear. But he came out here enough. Talking to him on the phone one time. And he says that he cannot think of a sin that he's committed in his life. Fifty-some years old. At the time, I was not very spiritual. I just stopped and said, well, you just did. You lied. (laughs) For the record, true story does not come out here anymore. But just for the record... He thought he had not sinned. I look at nine and ten. Look at ten. Pronounce them guilty. I'm guilty. It's only by God's mercy. It's only by God giving me his righteousness. Remember, righteousness is just a fancy word. It means to be made right. God makes me right. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He that knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. I become right because of what Christ did. We should be, verse 10, cast out. We're in rebellion. I choose sin. We have a tendency to kind of water it down. I was reading something by uh, Tozer the other day where he said, we got to let go of this idea of this poor person caught in sin. Oh, they don't want to sin. They're caught in it. No, they are in rebellion. We are choosing to rebel against God. Yes, sin is a trap. The Bible says, yes, sin is a mess. But the reality is, I am in rebellion against God. And it's only through His mercy and His righteousness that I can even approach Him. And that's the beauty of that word. Let me repeat again. His unfailing, great, steadfast, loving kindness. Oh, wow, Lord, thank you for loving a mess. What's the only reaction to when you understand mercy? 11. But let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let them also who love your name be joyful in you. If you note in verse 11, there is rejoice, there is joy, there is joyful. I think God's trying to get a point across in verse 11. The only response to understanding his mercy is joy, is to stop and say, Lord, you have given me something that I could never earn. You're giving me something I can never deserve. And I am a complete mess and you still just love me. I rejoice in that. I love it. And one of the Psalms coming up, we'll get to it says, what shall I render to the Lord? What can I give to God for all the good he's done for me? And the answer the psalmist says is this, I will take up the cup of salvation. Meaning the only thing I can give to God to say thank you for all you've done for me because he doesn't want the blood of animals. He doesn't want more gold. He doesn't want silver. He doesn't want your money. The only thing you can give to God according to the psalmist to say thank you for saving me is to say, Lord, I'm just going to take more of your salvation. So the only way I can tell you thank you, Lord, is by taking more from you. And God says, yeah, I know that's my mercy. It's deep, folks. It is so absolutely deep to shout for joy to realize his mercy that he loves you with which takes us right to psalm 6 
to the chief musician with stringed instruments on an eight-stringed harp of Psalm of David. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but O you, Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, deliver me. O save me for your mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows old because of all my enemies. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. For the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed Suddenly, To not be right with God affects you physically and it affects you spiritually. Take a look at 1 and 2. Do not rebuke me in your anger nor chase me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me. My bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. I, I can speak for myself and I've seen it in other people. When we are not right with God, my soul hurts And it affects me physically. Now, don't take this teaching to physical maladies equal unconfessed sin. I'm not saying that. I am saying that in my life, I know there's been times where I have not been spiritually right with God. And my soul hurts and my flesh hurts. This is an ongoing theme here in Psalm to build on this. Go with me to Psalm 32, please. Psalm 32. It's showing that when we are not right with God, it just affects us, body, soul, and spirit. Because I have been designed, I have been created to give God the glory. When I walk in rebellion to Him, it affects me. Psalm 32, verse 1. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute, does not charge iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. Listen to this. When I kept silent, my bones grew old. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Selah, stop, pause, think about it. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. When I kept silent, verse 3, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Have you ever been in that position of just the heaviness of God? Guys, it's love. His chastisement and his conviction is love. It's God's way of saying, I love you enough to say that there's a break in our fellowship and we need to get this right. So much so that if you remember when Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5, when you're giving your gift to God, if you're at the altar and you realize that somebody has something against you, you're supposed to leave your gift at the altar and go make it right with him. God says it is so important that when you feel that conviction of the Holy Spirit upon you to say, listen, this isn't right. To stop at that moment and say, Lord, I want to be right with you. Now, Romans 8, 1 says there's no condemnation for those in Christ. And it's, it's hard, folks, to be able to distinguish conviction versus condemnation. Condemnation just wants to tell me how awful I am. That I am going to lose my kids. I am going to lose my wife. I am going to lose the church. And this whole thing is a fraud. It's a fake. And James, you're absolutely nothing. Those voices are sometimes heard. That's condemnation. That's a lie from the pit of hell. But according to John 10, my sheep hear my voice, meaning Christ says we learn to hear his voice. Conviction is James. Through my mercy, you can be a better father. Through my mercy, you can be a better husband. Through my mercy, you can be a better pastor. 
And through my mercy, your failures can be forgiven and wiped away as far as the east is from the west. I love conviction because conviction is love. Condemnation is alive from the pit of hell. And we have to learn to be able to distinguish between those two. Jump ahead real quick to Psalm 38. Psalm 38, verse 1. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure, for your arrows pierce me deeply and your hand presses me down. That same idea, I'm cut. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin, for my iniquities have gone over my head. Have you ever felt that way? My sin is too much. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long. My loins are full of inflammation. There's no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. Anytime I run into somebody who claims to be a Christian and says, yeah, but James, what I've done, what I've done is too much, too big, can't be forgiven. I keep thinking, then you don't understand mercy. Everything I've done is too much. And God still gives me mercy. Unfailing, great, steadfast, loving kindness. So here I am, spiritually a mess, physically a mess. Look at verse 4. Return, O Lord, deliver me. O save me for your mercy's sake. Do not save me because I've earned it. Do not save me because I've deserved it. Do not save me because of my good works or my catechism or my sacraments or my baptism. Save me for your mercy. Your mercy is what saves me. And that is through Christ. Please remember 2 Corinthians 1. He is the Father of mercies. God the Father sent His Son to take care of my sin. And so therefore, my sins are forgiven through His mercy. So therefore, now I have life. Not only life, life more abundantly. Not only life more abundantly, eternal life. But then I get verse 5. For in death there's no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? That's kind of a dark little verse. So you've got to remember a couple things here. We have, sometimes in the Old Testament, their idea of eternity is a little dark. We have an extra 27 books of the Bible that they didn't have at David's time. We have a lot more books than what David had. We see a lot more. We understand a lot more through what Christ did. Back in the Old Testament, it was a little bit different. Paul uses the term mystery. Certain things were a mystery. For them, they didn't see it, but for us, we see it a little clearer. David Guzik has a great point on this. He says this, It'd be wrong to take these agonized words of David as evidence that there's no life beyond this life. The Old Testament has a shadowy understanding of the world beyond. Sometimes it shows a clear confidence. Job 19, which I'll read here in a little bit. Sometimes it has the uncertainty that David shows here. But 2 Timothy 2.10 says that Jesus, quote, brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That's a great verse. Jesus brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The understanding of the afterlife was murky at best in the Old Testament. But Jesus let us know more about heaven and hell than any of us ever could. We have a clearer picture of eternity because of Christ. So that way I can tell somebody, I know somebody who died and rose again. I'm not talking some neighbor near-death experience. I'm saying I know somebody who defeated death. 
I know somebody that it says then that I know that absent from the body is present with the Lord. Today you'll be with me in paradise. I know that. And I can tell you how you can know that too, through Christ. Because Christ brought life and immortality to light. He shined the light on immortality. And according to Hebrews, he took away the fear of death. Sometimes in the Psalms, they don't get it. Sometimes in Ecclesiastes, they don't get it. Sometimes in the Old Testament, they don't get it. But then every now and then, there's somebody who gets a glimpse of it. Job got a glimpse of it. Job 19. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. After my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, not another, how my heart yearns within me. After my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. Job got it. And there's times where the psalmist get it, and there's times where it's a little dark. We have now the light through Christ to understand. So since we know this, it's still a battle. Verse 6, I am weary with my groaning all night. I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows old because of all my enemies. Boy, who hasn't been in that spot? Who has not been in that spot of the groaning? You can't sleep at night. The tears, the wasting away. Just everything overwhelming you. That's why his mercy is new every morning. That's why his unfailing, great, steadfast, loving kindness is there. Because, Lord, this world is a mess. And I rejoice in what? Verse 8. The Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. He has heard my supplication and will receive my prayer. See, it's interesting. Back in Psalm 5.1. I'm giving him my words, I'm giving him my groaning, and I'm giving him my cries. And it's only by his mercy, verse 7, I can come into his house. Now in Psalm 6, your mercies are delivering me. And look at verse 8. The Lord has heard. He hears your weeping. He hears your supplication. That supplication is a plea. He hears your pleas, and he hears your prayers. Aren't you thankful you serve a God that hears? He hears it. You're not talking to some invisible force that you hope understands and responds. You're not talking to some God that you have to do a whole lot to butter him up. You are talking to a God that says, I can't even look at you because you're sin. But through my mercies, I'll talk to you. Through my mercy, I'll look at you. Through my mercy, I'll respond to you. And not only that, I will now lead you in righteousness. I will take your unrighteousness and make you righteous and I will lead you all the days of your life. It's an absolutely amazing thing to stop and think about that I get to cry out, weep out, call out. You hear me, you respond, you lead me, you guide me, your mercy saves me, your righteousness leads me. Wow, Lord. So what should we do with all this? Let's finish with this. Can you go with me to Hebrews 4? Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4 sums it all up. Hebrews 4, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I can then take this and say, Lord, 
Your mercy saves me. Your righteousness leads me. I can now boldly come to you, verse 16, the throne of grace and find mercy and grace to help. Not because of what I've done, not because of who I am, but because, Lord, of you, your mercy, your righteousness. Oh, it's a beautiful thing. So if you're sitting here this morning and the only thing you're focusing on is everything that's wrong, every wrong you've ever done, every failure, every sin, that your life is a mess, I want you to stop. I want to get your mind off that and I want you to get your mind now on mercy and grace and forgiveness to say all that mess can be wiped clean through the mercy of God through Christ and all that can be taken care of through the grace of God, the gift of God through Christ. Oh, it's a beautiful picture. And that's why we can rejoice because of his mercy and his grace. And that word mercy, as we study that out now through the rest of Psalms, it's going to be over a hundred times in the book of Psalms. I want you to remember the depth of that word. And when the enemy comes in and he plants those condemnation in you, please remember the mercy of the Lord and the blessing that is. Worship team, if you come forward here for the final song. What I want to finish with is this. As we're getting ready to uh, uh, close up here and get ready for the final song. Um, 